You're listening to an audio resource from Vineyard Church of the Rockies in Fort Collins, Colorado. We are joining God's mission, transforming all things, and you're invited. To learn more about us and how you can connect, please visit votr.church. Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to gather together. It is great to worship together. I love sitting in the front row and hearing all of your voices as we unite together in song. It's so special every time we get together. If we've never met before, my name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here at the Vineyard. So glad that you're being introduced to the Vineyard. If this is your first Sunday, so thankful that you're here. I always want to take a moment and welcome everyone on the live stream as well. I was just on saying hi to you all personally, but we know there are many of you tuning in this morning, and uh, you're in for a great treat this morning because it's going to be a special, special Sunday. It is a special Sunday because every October, we have a giving campaign that I can, without any hyperbole at all, say changes the world. Every October, we gather a special offering and we give 100% of it away to our mission partners at Convoy of Hope, and we're kicking that campaign off today. Convoy of Hope has helped us and helped us as a church mobilize to join God in his mission of transforming all things And I'm so thankful every year when the fall comes around that we can gather and do this together. Uh, Last year, just for a frame of reference, I think the last three years in a row, we've outgiven ourselves from the previous year. And last year, we gave over $80,000 to Convoy of Hope through this giving campaign. Now, $80,000, it sounds amazing, but I want to share with you a little bit about what $80,000 actually means. $80,000 to a gift to Convoy of Hope means that when the hurricane came through Puerto Rico and Florida earlier this week, it means that we've already been mobilized with Convoy of Hope. We already have semi-trucks and boots on the ground responding to that humanitarian need and crisis. $80,000 means that in Zimbabwe, the the work with Convoy that we helped pioneer, we're now feeding over 2,000 kids every single day through a church plant that we were a part of putting in the ground in Bulawayo. And it means that countless women and farmers are being empowered so that they can not only learn trades and skills, but that they can begin to uh, empower those around them, care for their community and care for their family. Generational poverty is being flipped through our partnership with Convoy of Hope. We say it all the time, it's on our Wall, as you leave our church, the mission statement at the Vineyard is joining God's mission, transforming all things. And without a doubt, Convoy of Hope helps us to accomplish those things outside of these walls and in the world around us. And so we are so, so grateful and so thankful for Convoy of Hope. We recently sent a team to Puerto Rico, and they were able to to do some work in Puerto Rico. We're going to hear from part of that team next week. But this Sunday, I'm excited because we have a special guest. We have... Keith Adamson here in town, Senior Vice President of Global Affairs from Convoy of Hope. And I can just tell you that last night after uh, he and I and Josh went out for dinner, we got to share our hearts about what God is doing, not only in the local church, but what he is doing around the world. And I'm so excited for what he is going to deposit into our church community this morning. Also, bonus, he's another Iowa guy. So... We shared stories about how our lives cross without even knowing it. Our high schools played each other growing up. We have a strange history um, with gang culture and, and things like that as well, and just doing work around the United States. And so 
So very excited that Heath is here. Won't you welcome Heath up to the stage as he comes to share with us this morning. Thanks, Pastor. Thank you, man. Well, good morning. And again, uh, thank you for your generosity and your heart for people. It's true. It's making not only a difference, but I would suggest it's making the difference. Uh, we live in an age where hopelessness is, is epidemic, and hopelessness is completely unacceptable. Hopelessness is an illegitimate reality because it does not exist in the kingdom of God. Poverty is an illegitimate reality because it is not part of God's original design. This is my first time being at the vineyard of the Rockies, but already I've heard the phrase multiple times on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, there is no poverty. In heaven, there is no suffering. And we partner with the mighty one, the sovereign one, to pull his kingdom to the earth to eradicate hopelessness and end the cycle of physical and spiritual poverty. And I want to be clear, though, we do not just give a cup of cold water to the least of these. We do so in his name. The Bible says in the book of Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, God says of Abraham, for I have known him, I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they may keep the way of the Lord. And how do you keep the way of the Lord? To do righteousness and justice. I spoke with a father in Southeast Asia who sold his oldest daughter to buy food for the rest of his family. When you walk among the refugee camps outside of Venezuela, in Brazil and Colombia, and you encounter hundreds of thousands of refugees, you'll notice the trend. Many of the women and girls have shaved their heads. Why? They're selling their hair to buy food. Even right here in the United States, parents choose between, and I quote, paying the heating bill in the winter and buying food. Children go to school eating ketchup for breakfast because that's what they have. And today, for the first time in over 20 years, each one of us share a tragic historic setback for the first time in 20 years. The percentage of the world's population living in poverty has actually increased. That represents an additional 119 million people. That puts it at almost 900 million people on the earth who live in poverty. I know what it's like to gaze into the eyes of a war-shocked refugee or to wrap my arms around a man who is a recluse in society because he has leprosy and his ears and his nose are gone because of his skin disease. I know what it's like to hold in my arms children and infants who are not only malnourished, but they're starving. And I can tell you that God does not approve of that. And it has always been and always be the desire of God to end the cycle of hopelessness one person at a time. And he's doing it. He's doing it through people like you because of your radical generosity. And I believe he will continue to do it through people like us. I stood on the streets of perhaps what is known around the world as one of the most hopeless places on the planet. For the sake of dignity and respect, I won't tell you the city or the country I was in. 
and I stood on the streets, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a line of children formed. The line of children, in my estimation, was over four city blocks long. Most of the children had no clothes on. They were covered in feces. They smelled. They were very dirty and filthy. And many of them, their bones and their arms and their legs were crooked and, and warped. Why? Because in this part of the world, there's a belief that people who grow up in this particular part of the country are destined by the gods to suffer. So for them, there is no such thing as the hope of a better day tomorrow because the gods created them to suffer. And generation after generation, they believe it. The children formed a line in the streets, and I watched as a rusty pickup truck backed up to the children, and thank God for the person who was driving the truck. He was doing the best he could with what he had. And the children walked up to the back of the rusty truck, and the gentleman scooped down, and he picked up a small um, cup full of rice and placed it into their hands. And I watched as the children did not smile, and the children, who were evidently, obviously malnourished and very hungry, they did not begin to eat. Typically, when you're around someone who's very hungry and you give them food, they eat it right away. It's Their survival instincts kick in. But I watched something unique happen this day. The children did not begin to eat. Instead, they took the rice that was in their hands, and they began to walk away. And I asked someone who was with me, why aren't the children, who are obviously very hungry and malnourished, why aren't they eating the rice right away? And this is what he told me. He said, we asked ourselves the same question, and we followed the children back to their home. They live in what is called a slum. I don't like to call it a slum because it's their home. But they live in what is known as a slum, where there's no electricity, no running water. They get their drinking water from the same area where the feces and urine and trash run into. Many of the children are very, very sick. People don't live very long. He said, we followed them back to the slum, and what we noticed is rather than eating the rice on their own, we've watched as the children sit down in the dump, and they share the rice with their parents and their siblings. And all of a sudden, the rains came. I happened to be in this nation during the rainy season. The rains came, and I stood in the rain, and I watched as the children were trying to protect little grains of rice from slipping out from in between their fingers. And someone noticing the guys with comb-overs typically don't come from this part of the world ran up to me and held up an umbrella to keep me dry. And I did exactly what you would do. I politely thanked the person for trying to be respectful, but I asked him, please put the umbrella away. I remember standing there in the rain, and as I motioned for the individual to put the umbrella away, I noticed over my shoulder this large, huge, ornately carved wooden door. And it really caught my attention because I like design, I like architecture, and it looked like something from thousands of years ago. And standing in front of that door were little girls. I found out later, ages 8, 10, and 12, and they were wearing, wearing various shades of pink and purple. And I had a flashback. In that moment, my senses were overloaded, looking at the line of children. I was standing in the rain, burdened with the injustice of poverty, knowing that God is not okay with this. And I noticed this beautiful group of little girls standing in front of the wooden door. And I had a flashback to what it was like when our girls were little. 
So my wife, Allie, and I have been married 25 years. We have two daughters. One is 21, one is 20. And uh, they both live at home trying to pray in husbands as we speak. And, um, but I had a flashback to Friday morning. Back in the day when our daughters were, were little, Friday morning was my day, uh, my time to stay at home. And so every Friday morning was the same. We woke up, we had chocolate chip pancakes with more than enough butter and syrup, right? And then we always played dress up. We always played Little House on the Prairie. But my favorite thing to play was wedding. And so our girls would always dress up and stand at the end of the hallway, and I'd stand there with my Bible, open up my Bible. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today in the presence of God, the side of this company, to join together this man and this woman in the holy covenant of marriage. Marriage is an honorable estate instituted by God. And so our daughters have been married hundreds of times. And so they walk up, they get married to this imaginary human being to their side. And I just had this flashback and I said to someone I was traveling with, look, even right here in the middle of one of the most hopeless places on the earth, the beautiful little girls, they play dress up too. He said, Heath, they're not playing dress up. He said, that door is the door to a brothel. He said, those children are sold for the equivalent of 200 U.S. dollars. Children 8, 10, and 12. I felt what you were feeling. You feel, you feel anger. You feel righteous indignation knowing that this is completely unacceptable. And you have this blend of thoughts and feelings where you think, I just want to figure out a way to call the authorities. This needs to end. And then you realize that many of the authorities are behind it. You have these thoughts, uh, we could take some of these girls home one day and adopt them. Allie and the girls would give them a great family. These children deserve to know what it's like to be prayed over and tucked in bed and sit at a table and go over how their day was. And, and I'm standing there, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm looking at the line of, of children who are hungry, looking at the door to the brothel, and I had a conversation with God. Now I understand what Andre Nowen meant when he said, God comes to us among the poor, for it is there that the door to God's eternal house is opened to us as well. I was also reminded of what Philip Berrigan said, who, when he said, the poor remind us of who we are, and the prophets tell us of who we shall become. So in society, we hide the poor and we kill the prophets. After I talked to God and I got myself under composure as best as I could, we walked around the corner and we walked down the street. I'm still thinking about the line of children and the door, the door and the girls in front of it. And we walked into a building and I had a very different experience. We walked into the building and what hit me first was the sound that I heard. I heard the sound of singing and laughter. We walked around the corner and I saw a group of girls holding hands with pigtails, wearing light and dark blue school uniforms, twirling in circles, smiling and laughing. And all of a sudden, somebody rang a bell, and out of nowhere, hundreds of children came running to an open room in the middle of this space, and they bowed their heads and they gave thanks to God. And then one by one, they sat down at a table and they ate a plate of food, nutritious food, with rice, vegetables, and meat. That is one of 3,400 Convoy of Hope feeding centers. 
The difference between the children in that school and the children on the streets has nothing to do with where they grow up. They all find their sustenance in the city dump. It has nothing to do with whether or not their parents are more intelligent or educated or not. All of them have parents who, for a living, they pick up little pieces of plastic and take the plastic to the recycling center to buy enough rice to stay alive for another day or two. The difference between the children on the streets and the children in Convoy of Hope's feeding center is one word. It is hope. And for these kids, hope came through the form of a plate of nutritious food. And hope comes in somebody's life, not only when we, as followers of Jesus, ask what is good, but we ask what is right. And it is right to feed a child who is hungry and malnourished, expecting nothing in return. For many children around the world, they are introduced to the love of Jesus through a plate of food. It is righteousness and justice, exactly what God had in mind in Genesis chapter 18. It says, for I have known him who is him, Abraham. So who is Abraham? Abraham was a pagan Iraqi man who was steeped in astrology. And one day, Yahweh, the sovereign God, the king of all kings, Yahweh encounters Abraham on the God says, through you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then God says to Abraham, I want you to go to a land, a place I will show you. And so Abraham goes on a journey with God. He scoops up his family and he starts traveling. As he begins the journey, eventually Abraham's descendants will become known as the dusty ones. The ancient word is hapiru, where we get our word Hebrew. Abraham and his descendants lived on the other side of the Euphrates River, outside of the city of Chaldea. Because they lived in the desert, they would come into the city, and they became known as the dusty ones because their faces were covered with dust. The Hapiru, the Hebrews. God tells Abraham, your descendants will be enslaved for over 400 years. How interesting is it that the God who wanted to introduce humanity to righteousness and justice does so through someone whose descendants will bear the unbearable burden of poverty and vulnerability and marginalization for over four centuries. Eventually, the Hebrews will become known as the Jews. When King Cyrus, the Persian king, is reigning uh, in his kingdom, they become known as Jews. And eventually, at the turn of uh, what we would call the first millennia, a Jewish sage, a descendant of Abraham, shows up on the scene. He stands up in the synagogue and he makes a statement. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To preach the gospel to the poor. What is he doing? Righteousness and justice. God says, I have known Abraham that he may teach his children my way. Well, what is your way? To do righteousness 
and justice. So what is righteousness and what is justice? Righteousness is the Hebrew word zedekah and justice is mishpat, if you want to fact check me. Righteousness has less to do with doing right things and doing good deeds. Scholars define the Hebrew word that we translate righteousness to mean this. To live a life of radical generosity and kindness. Jesus was not necessarily righteous simply because he never sinned. He was righteous because he was radically generous. There is nothing more generous than the, than the sinless Lamb of God giving his life up on the cross for the sins of the world. He lived a life we could have never lived. He died a death we could have never died. He paid the price for our sin the Lamb of God who ever lives to take away the sins of the world. The most righteous deed ever done in the history of the world is the Son of God laying His life down for the sins of the world. Now we know why we have become the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness and justice. What is justice? Justice has less to do with right and wrong. It has everything to do with honor and shame. In the Hebrew culture, the culture where the gospel um, originates it's in its embryonic form, justice has everything to do with honor. When God says, I want Abraham to introduce humanity to my way, what is your way? Righteousness and justice. What does righteousness and justice look like? It means to live a life of such radical generosity that we restore people to a place of honor. This is what salvation looks like. Because you have been restored to a place of honor before the Father because of His radically generous act of dying for you. Does that make sense? That's what it means when you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. He has given you the most honorable seat in the universe You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Righteousness and justice. And Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor. So who is Jesus? We know that Jesus is a Hebrew man who spoke Aramaic, and yet his teachings were primarily recorded in Greek. According to a detailed study of the Gospels, Jesus never really traveled more than 100 miles from his hometown. Some scholars tell us he communicated on a third grade level. Others tell us he communicated on a sixth grade level. Which is it? I have no idea. All I know is he communicated in a language children could understand. After all, it was the little boy who brought five loaves of barley bread, barley being the bread of the poor. He brought five loaves of barley bread and two small fish gave them to the mighty one, he gives thanks, and the multitude is fed. We know that Jesus didn't come to the earth to create another religion. Jesus did not come to the earth to convert people. He is not the most relevant way. He is not the Republican way, nor the Democrat way. 
He is not the most relevant way, and he is not the easy way. According to the gospel, he is the only way. For there is no other name given to us by which we must be saved. We know that Jesus came to make disciples. A disciple does not only believe what Jesus believes, a disciple believes how Jesus believes. As a Christian, our core calling is not to memorize Jesus. We are called to become like him. And as we become like him, what is important to him now becomes important to us. And it is important that the poor are restored to a place of honor through radical generosity and kindness. We see this all throughout the Gospels. In Mark chapter 1, for example, Jesus does not just heal the leper, Jesus touches the leper. What is he doing? He's restoring a leper to honor simply by reaching out and touching him. In Mark chapter 5, the woman with the issue of blood, what does Jesus do? He doesn't just walk up, to, walk up to her and say, be healed. Instead, he calls her daughter, which in Aramaic is a term of endearment. It literally means royal one or princess. What is he doing? He's looking at a woman. He's engaging her in conversation, which is something a first century Jewish man did not do, especially a woman who would be considered ceremonially unclean. He looks at her, he talks to her, and he calls her princess. What is he doing? He is not only being radically generous by putting his reputation on the line, he is restoring her to a place of honor. We see this in John 8 when the woman is caught in adultery. She is caught, which means there were two people. But when you read in the gospel record, they only drag the woman in front of the religious scholars. Have you ever wondered, where's the man? Why didn't they drag the man? But they drag the woman, which tells us it is not just a controversial moment related to an act of sin. It is very much related to inequality. Because at this time in history, a man could divorce a woman for any reason. Even if she burnt dinner. And that's a fact. You can find it in ancient rabbinical teachings. If she burnt dinner, a man could divorce a woman. A woman who was not allowed to attend school. A woman who at that time in history, was not even allowed to leave home except to fetch water. When a woman was divorced, she lost everything. This woman is caught in adultery. The man is nowhere to be found. They want to take her life. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gets down into the dirt, and he associates with her. What is he doing? He is restoring her to a place of honor. We see this all throughout the Word. Where through radical acts of generosity, God honors people who simply do not deserve it. Righteousness and justice are paired together in the Word of God over three dozen times. But the first time that they are paired together is in Genesis 18:19, when God encounters Abram and God says, I want you to teach your children how to keep my way. As the God of the universe, surely your way is very complicated. Surely your way is very hard to achieve. No, the mighty one makes it simple for us. I want you to keep my way. Righteousness and justice. 
Radical generosity that restores people to a place of honor. Jesus takes his disciples on a 32-mile round trip from Bethsaida to a place called Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16. Caesarea Philippi is not to be confused with the Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. Jesus takes his disciples to this place where he makes this statement. He says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Caesarea Philippi gets its name from Caesar Philip. Caesar Augustus gifted a large piece of land to King Herod. King Herod gave it to his son named Philip, hence Caesarea Philippi. But Caesarea Philippi was known by a different name when Jesus went there with his disciples. It was called Panaeus or Banias. Panaeus, named after the goat god, Pan. Pan, the goat god, was the god over, you guessed it, goat herds. He was also the god over music, and he was the god over fear. It's where we get our English word, panic. Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and he asks a question. You've read the question before in Matthew 16. Who do people say that I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say this. Some say this. But who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, you're right. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what rock is Jesus talking about, and what in the world is the church? Because Jesus does not say, on this rock, I will build my synagogue. He does not say, on this rock, I will build my temple. Instead, he uses a term that was familiar in secular society and Greco-Roman culture that's translated into Greek, ekklesia. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. So what rock is he talking about, and what in the world is the ecclesia all about? Well, there are three interpretations to what Matthew 16, verse 18 means. The Catholic interpretation goes like this. Peter is the one who in Acts chapter 2 stood up during the Feast of Pentecost. He preached the gospel, and that's technically when many would say the church is born. Well, since Peter's name means rock, Peter must have been the first pope. The Catholic interpretation kind of goes like this. Because Peter was the first guy who stood up. He, he was the first pope. Peter's the guy the church is built on. That's the Catholic interpretation. I think there's some value to that. After all, Peter's the guy who stood up. It wasn't Bartholomew. It wasn't Thomas. It was Peter. The second interpretation is the Protestant interpretation. It kind of goes like this. On this rock, on what rock? On the rock of your confession, Peter, that I am the Christ. Because remember, Jesus asked the question, who, who do people say that I am? Some say this, some say that, but who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God, on the rock of your confession, because Hebrews says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. On the rock of your confession, I will build my church. That's the Protestant interpretation. I've, I align quite a bit with that one. But I would like to suggest a third one that is very much related to what God said to Abraham in Genesis 18. God says to Abraham, I want you to teach your descendants to keep my way. How do we keep your way? Righteousness and justice. Abraham's descendants become known as the dusty ones. Eventually, they become known as the Hebrews when they're enslaved in ancient Egypt. Two and a half million estimated, two and a half million emancipated slaves leave ancient Egypt and begin the journey towards the promised land. After the Persian Empire destroys the Babylonians, 
in Daniel chapter 5, you can read about it. After Darius and Cyrus assume power, at that time in history, the Hebrews become known as Jews. It was a slang term. If you speak ancient Persian, when you say the word Jew, you have to spit on the ground to say the word. It was a derogatory term. It was not a compliment. By the time Jesus comes to the scene, he is a Jewish sage, a descendant of Abraham, and he takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and he says, I have an idea. I'm going to create a community of people, a community of people who have had the same mission throughout human history, but they have been known by a different term. There was a time they were known as the dusty ones. There was a time they were known as Hebrews or Jews, but there's going to be a time where they are known as the church. So what is the church? Jesus uses a word from Greco-Roman culture that finds its origin in this. At this time, the Roman Caesars ruled over all of society. And the Caesars stole an idea from Alexander the Great. And this is what happened. The Roman Caesars has had what is called a Roman Senate. And it proved to be very difficult to get any work done with the Senate. There's nothing new under the sun. And what Caesar did is Caesar stood up, and this is documented in history. Caesar stood up in front of the Roman Senate and he called out certain Roman senators. You, I'm calling out. You, I'm calling out. You, I'm calling out. Ecclesia, the called out ones. The Roman Caesar handpicked Roman senators. He called them out, and they met with him in his private royal chamber, where they heard the king's voice. They knew the king's heart, and at the end of the meeting with Caesar, Caesar said, and I quote, go into all the world. They were sent into all of the world to represent what they heard from the king. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church. On what rock? At the base of Mount Hermon, there was this group of rocks known as the Rock of the Gods. Embedded into one of them was a cave where there was a freshwater underground spring that actually fed the Jordan River. And you can Google, you can fact check this if you don't know this. And what they did is every now and then they celebrated religious feasts and they worshipped the goat god Pan. They sacrificed animals. They did horrible things. It was a place... That where a conservative Jewish rabbi would not go because it would be considered too evil or too wicked, too unclean. It was called the Rock of the Gods. At the top of Mount Hermon, there was a crack that went all the way down to the cave where they worshipped the goat god. And can I tell you what that crack was called? The Gate of Hell. Jesus says, on this rock... On what rock? A, a rock that represents utter disparity 
utter hopelessness, I'm going to create a community of people who spend time with the king in his private royal chamber. They know the king's voice, they know the king's heart, and then the king says, go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. And what's the purpose of preaching the gospel? The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the poor. Both physically and spiritually. For everybody apart from Christ is spiritually depraved. Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You are a generous people. This is a generous church. And you don't need me to come here and tell you to be generous. Because you've proven time and time again that it's part of who you are. I come today to say thank you. Thank you for being the church. Thank you for spending time with the king and hearing the king's heart and hearing the king's voice and being willing to go whether you go physically and personally or you go through your giving through Convoy of Hope. You're already doing what I'm talking about. But I stand here today humbly but boldly, and I ask you to do it again. I ask you to be radically generous and in doing so restore children who are hungry to a place of honor. And for a hungry child, hope comes and honor looks like a plate of nutritious food. This is what Proverbs chapter 3 says. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. I'll be done in three minutes. A few weeks ago, I was in Kenya, and I was reminded once again of how powerful it is to feed a child. I walked through a place in Nairobi, Kenya. We went to one of our program centers. It's a school um, called uh, Glare Academy. It has 149 students. Children who, when you walk through this neighborhood, you do not see men. Most of the men have abandoned their families or they have passed away from complications related to HIV or AIDS. Many of the children are HIV positive. It is a, it is a desperate place. We showed up because I was in, in the country for some meetings because of what I, what I do as a member of the team at Convoy of Hope. And we went to this academy. We met Helen, the school administrator. We walked into a small room attached to the school where they had their poultry project. The only time the children get meat is when they go to school. And for most of the children, the only meal they eat every day is at school. These children work hard. Most of the parents can't afford the school fees, so we figure it out. The children go to school, they eat their daily meal. Monday through Thursday are the happy days at the school, Helen told me. She said Friday is always the sad day because the children know they will go home and they won't eat again until Monday. You think about that. Helen had the entire school come out. I'll never forget it. Had the entire school come out 
because there was a student, I won't say her name right now because of child protection policies, but a young student found out that Convoy of Hope, or to use her term, the convoy, the convoy was coming to the community, and she wanted to say thank you. So for a few weeks, she rehearsed and practiced a dance. The entire school was there, we were there, and this, this girl, in front of everybody, danced for us. I did what you would do. As soon as the dance was over, I ran up to her, picked her up, and tried to give her the biggest bear hug I possibly could. And then somebody translated for me, and I asked, why did you do that? It, it takes great courage to dance and be vulnerable in front of everybody like that. Why did you do that? She had two reasons. One, I wanted to thank the convoy for all of the uh, help you've given our community. But she said, secondly, I wanted the convoy to leave smiling. I wanted to do for you what you've done for us. I think on that day, God used that young girl to restore us to a place of honor. Because we certainly didn't deserve that. Father, it's today, in this moment, I give you thanks for sending Jesus to demonstrate what radical generosity really looks like. I thank you for the gospel that we are restored to a place of honor. We can know you because of the cross. I give you thanks for the men, the women, and the students at this church, both here in person and online, who year after year are radically generous. They have restored people to a place of honor a place of honor in their communities, and a place of honor before you. They have shared the gospel with countless thousands of people through their generous giving. So today I give you thanks. And today, God, I also ask for more. I humbly and boldly ask, God, that as you speak to every single person today, that our answer will be yes before we even know what you're requiring of us. I give you thanks for what you've done in the past. I pray for something even greater today. Our commitment to you is this, God, that whatever you speak to us, we've already said yes. I pray that you will bless and set your hand of favor and multiplication upon the offering. Let it echo and reverberate around the world to continue to impact lives and restore people to a place of honor, righteousness, and justice. The church of Jesus Christ. We bless your name. We thank you, Lord. Amen.